Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Remember, everyone is considered innocent until proven otherwise. It's a hot, sticky night in the small rural town of Gore, the self-proclaimed country music capital of New Zealand. It's calm and quiet outside. Aside from the occasional sizzle as a sausage is turned on a barbecue and a fresh bottle of beer is opened. It's just a typical Kiwi summer's night. Except this night would finish in a far darker, far sadder way than most. With the tragic death of three-year-old Lachlan Jones. A death that to this day makes little sense. And despite two police investigations, leaves more questions than answers. The date is the 19th of January 2019 and young Lachlan is at his mother Michelle Officer's home on Salford Street in the southeastern part of Gore. The street sits sandwiched between the AMP showgrounds to the north and the council-owned and operated oxidation ponds to the south. It's a quiet, middle-class area. Safe. Lachlan, or Lockie, is playing outside in the sprinkler. Inside, Michelle is busy helping one of her other sons, Lockie's stepbrother, with his weight training. When, at approximately 9pm, Lockie disappears. Searching the house and the street, the now frantic Michelle comes to the realisation that no one knows where Lockie is. At this same time, Michelle's former partner, Lockie's father, Paul Jones, is preparing for bed at his father's home when his phone rings. It's Michelle. She seems vague and strange and tells Paul that Lockie is missing. Immediately jumping up and grabbing his keys, Paul makes a call to one of his best friends, Dave Aitken, and tells him that Lockie's dead. He just knows it. At 9.36pm, Michelle calls 111 emergency services and is told by the operator to return home, which she does. Arriving at the home after 10pm, Paul is relieved to find the house full of people. Thank God, Lockie has been found. Instead, 
he discovers that he is in fact still missing. And Furious leaves the house to begin his own search. By this time, police officers and a police dog handler are already scouring the area searching for Lockie. A short time later, Paul sees a St. John's ambulance arrive and assumes it is here for some other call-out. Soon after this, police advise Michelle, and eventually Paul, that Lockie has been found. Floating, face up, in one of the nearby oxidation ponds. Deceased, presumed drowned. And here, we would assume this story would end. Another tragic drowning death of a toddler in New Zealand. But in the hours and days immediately following the event, questions would start to be asked about the strange circumstances of Lockie's death and the subsequent police investigation. How and why did three-year-old Lockie, in bare feet, with a full nappy, make his way 1.2 kilometres from his mother's home to the location of his eventual discovery, down a gravel road, over a fence, through long grass, overrun with thistles, and eventually drown face up in shallow water without a single mark or scratch on him. I decided to head to Gore to find out. The kids in Zendawara, they weren't worried about it, you know. They obviously didn't like Lockie for a start. About every second time I went around this place, I told him my son was in danger. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. Before we continue this season of guilt, I need to give you some important information. This season won't be like the others. In fact, I don't wish to call it a full season of guilt, but I'm going to instead refer to it as a mini-series. This may come as somewhat of a dismay to many of you, I know you've been patiently waiting, but let me explain. In 2022, After reading about this tragic case, I contacted Lockie's father, Paul Jones, and inquired as to whether he would be interested in me taking on the case for the next season of Guilt, which I told him wouldn't take place until 2023. We spoke at length on the phone, and it became clear to me that this case had to be looked at deeper. There was so much that didn't make sense. Paul was more than happy to go ahead with the podcast, and we agreed to speak in the new year when it was time to take the next step. Fast forward to 2023, and I again make contact with Paul. Plans are made, flights, a rental car and accommodation booked. I'm on my way. But as with the case itself, all is not what it seems. Upon arriving in Gore, 
Paul seemed somewhat off, and eventually informed me that in fact there was another journalist planning a podcast on the case. It became immediately clear to me that Paul, being probably too nice, just couldn't tell me until it was too late, and likely didn't realise the issue with this. And I don't blame him or hold a grudge. He's a man under a huge amount of stress and pressure whose life has been turned upside down. But for me, this was obviously not good. I personally believe I'm doing this for the right reasons. I'm doing this to try and genuinely help every case I work on. I'm not in this to try and compete with other journalists for a story. In my opinion, this doesn't help a case. And in this situation, the other journalist is the award-winning, highly respected and talented Melanie Reed, who has been doggedly working on the case through a series of articles over the last four years. And as it turns out, completely unbeknownst to me, Paul informs me on my arrival in Gore that she is now also planning a podcast. And she's now discovered that I'm here and naturally is also frustrated with the situation. At this point, I've got two options. Forge ahead anyway, which to be honest is what many journalists would do. Or secondly, leave this one to Mel, who has already invested four years into the case. And for me, it was an easy decision. I made contact with her and told her that it's her case. And I look forward to hearing the podcast. Of course, this comes as a relief for her and all is now well and good. She's already done great work, and I know will leave no stone unturned. However, this case is truly fascinating, and I've already spent a considerable sum getting here. I decide that I'll produce a short mini-series, based on the interviews I have planned, with the purpose of giving an overview of the case, and also ensuring that I have content coming from my loyal subscribers. And that's what you're going to get. A short, condensed mini-series, highlighting the case and its flaws, speaking to some key witnesses. We'll visit the site of Lockie's death, but ultimately, this will not be an active investigation. Consider it a teaser for Mel's upcoming podcast, which is due to be released in the coming months, and I have no doubt will be amazing. You'll find the name and link to this in the show notes of this episode as and when it's available. But I can promise you that in this mini-series, you're going to hear for the first time ever the events that took place in and around the tragic death of Lockie Jones. But the good news is while you're listening to this mini-series, I'm already working on season four. And this time, there is no competition. And I can promise you, it's big. One of New Zealand's most enduring mysteries and you're going to hear things for the very first time that have never been publicly released in this case. And you won't be waiting long. For now, though, I really hope you enjoy this special mini-series. It truly is such a sad, tragic event that has left an entire town with nothing but questions, and a doting father with the giant hole his son has left behind. Remember, at the time of this audio, I wasn't aware of the fact that this wouldn't be a full season. But let's catch back up to this story 
on the plane. You will need to put all of your personal belongings into the overhead lockers. Please ensure you take care when lowering the Okay, I'm in my Toyota Corolla rental car. It's actually very tidy and I'm on my way now from the Dunedin Airport on my way to Gore, which is a town in the lower South Island, um, an hour and a half south of Dunedin, which is kind of famous for not being famous, I guess would be the way to put it. There's not really much that happens down here. I mean, it's a great place, but it's a farming place. And, um, you know, I'm sure that the people that live here will tell me otherwise. Anyway, um, you know, this is kind of that moment. It's it's taken me an hour and a half to get there. I just stopped and grabbed myself a coffee. And this is the calm before the storm. Obviously, I've spoken to Paul before now and you know I've done some research I know a bit about this case but really it's um, I just wanted this to sort of unfold as as I'm here and I mean that's part of how this podcast works and you know that now if you've listened to the other seasons it's I'm bringing you along on this investigation right now I know as much as you know and we're going to discover everything together so yeah I expect right now this case is going to be sad and emotional in far different ways than what we've been through before of course in this case we're talking about the absolutely tragic death of three year old Lachlan Jones in 2019 January 2019 it's been four years and uh, as you're going to find out this case is not as simple as it seems Lachlan's death was declared a drowning and you know I mean coming into this like everything I always come in with an impartial view. I mean, I'm not going to have a bias either way at this point. I'm not coming into this saying there's been foul play or there hasn't. I'm just going to come in, look at all the facts, and do a thorough investigation and see what comes out of that. But in my chats with Paul and some research I've already done, there are some things in this case which just don't quite seem to make sense at this point and that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be able to find the answer to those questions but it certainly means it's worthwhile looking as I make my way into Gore I remember that it is in fact famous for one thing in particular a large sign advertises it as the country music capital of New Zealand. 
A river runs through the entrance to the town, brown and swollen from recent rain. I'm keen to get out and explore, but for now, I need to get to my Airbnb and get myself organised. Because in a couple hours, I'll be meeting one of the most important witnesses in this case. Lockie's father, Paul Jones. Paul runs his own courier delivery business and operates early hours, typically getting up at 4am to start his day. However, despite that, perhaps because he can't get his mind to rest, he tells me he is up late. At 7.30pm and dark, as I leave my accommodation and make my way to his house. Okay, about to meet Paul. Uh, Now I understand it's right here somewhere. Oh, yep. Need to do a bit of a yui. All right, it begins. Knock, knock. Hey, mate, how are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, same to you, buddy. I'll just grab some stuff out of the car. Be two seconds. I pull into Paul's driveway and find a modest, semi-detached home. The garage is open and I find Paul inside. We move to a small dining table and I turn on my recorder. Despite Lockie only being three at the time of his death, Paul was not a young father, and is middle-aged. He carries a look of someone that's been through a lot. After four years of fighting to keep Lockie's case alive, it's clear that while it's worn him down, it has not stopped his resolve to pursue what he believes to be the truth, that Lockie's death was no accident, and that he didn't walk 1.2 kilometres to the ponds that night. But before we get to speaking about problems with this case, we spoke about Lockie and the fact that in a way, he was a miracle. Because Paul had been told when he was younger that he would never be a father. Tell me about when Lockie came along and how that was for you, obviously. So Lockie's your your only boy, your only child? Oh, his only child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that must have been a pretty special thing for you. Yeah. No, just probably a bit, a bit too much for me at the time, yeah. you know. I was a huge overwhelm, you know. And you sort of make sure he's all right with everything and that, you know. It's just unbelievable. But, yeah, just, oh, I don't know. It just, yeah, it's just a massive thrill to me, you know. What I wish for all my life I finally had, you know. Yeah. It was bloody... Yeah, it's amazing, really. I went to a doctor and that, yeah. and had a test and that done and that, and he said, oh, very unlikely you have children and that, so. Well, so Lockie's a bit of a miracle child in a way. Yeah. Oh, we had, Michelle had got pregnant before, as I said, but yeah. uh, it was just, yeah, it was some miscarriage, so. Yeah. Mm, oh, yeah, it was a miracle in my eyes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You look like a bloody cute boy. Oh, he's a hard thing. Yeah. yeah. Brainy wee boy for his age, you know. Oh, really? Oh, the kindergarten said he should have been at school. 
yeah. the lady that took him and that said, you know, he's well above his years and oh, he just knew, he knew all the right from wrong and that, you know, and he could count and, you know, and geez, yeah, when he, when he was young he did the whole alphabet and that, you know. And what was sort of, what was his personality like? Oh, he's a real loving kiddo, just, yeah. but very, um, yeah, not sure he wouldn't go away, like he liked to be close to the like myself and, and that all the time and you know he's very wary you'd had to sort of when you got into kindy make sure oh it's alright we'll come back to you and that you know and he didn't, he sat there and that but and then when you pick him up and that he he um go to leave and he had all these girls lined up and he gave them all a hug before he left and see you tomorrow and that and he is quite happy you know yeah. yeah but that initial sort of hesitancy to sort of go away from your side but once he got oh, somewhere yeah. he'd be quite yeah. confident once he was yeah. in there sort of thing yeah and towards the later time and that um, he sort of got worse you know he didn't want to go to kindy he wanted to stay with me and that you know it sort of mm, sort of was a well now looking at it, it may have been a bit concerning you know but you don't sort of look at those things you know towards the end he was worrying times and that you know yeah. just you know and I know I probably didn't do a few things right but I certainly had my you know the only way I went about that was to look after Lockie you know I had concerns for him towards the end why do you tell me about, about or how did you meet Michelle and at, at the beginning sorry you don't mind me just asking some of these <laughs> oh, I just met her um, one day after the um Cool races, yeah, because yeah. I was a curry up here and that, and I seen her, I had seen her and and her and uh, her friends in at H and J's and that, so I was going to get something to eat one night at McDonald's. She said, "Oh, oh, the courier guy and that," and then I went and had something to eat with them and, um, yeah, all of a sudden she said, "Oh, why don't you, um, you can come home and stay at my place?" And I said, "Oh, that's a bit weird," you know, in the first meeting and that, so. That's sort of how we met, cause, and she had her two kids there, Johnny and Cam, that night, and I shouted them a feed and that, and I thought it was all right and that, so, um, yeah, we watched a movie, and I just stayed on the couch, and then I bucket off early in the morning, and she said, oh, if you ever want to come back, or all that, you know, um, get a hold of me, so, yeah, that's how it all started. Johnny and Cam are Michelle's two boys, from a previous relationship, who at the time of Lockie's death were in their mid-teens. From here, we're going to speak about Michelle and her relationship with Paul, and the fact that according to Paul, it ended poorly. I will add here that I've been unable to contact Michelle, and both her and that side of the family have always refused to speak to the media. But bear in mind that there are always two sides to every story. And clearly, Paul is going to hold a deep level of resentment towards her. However, I decided to include this to help provide an overall view of the backstory and situation. Yeah. And how long were you guys together for? Uh, oh, six and a half years. Okay, so a little while. Mm-hmm. And so at what point did... Um, when, so when did Lockie come along? Well... Uh, three years into the relationship yeah 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 and tell me about that how you felt when you found out oh, you were well, going to be a dad from well I was told I wasn't going to be a dad when I was young so it was just a bit of a shock to me by all accounts Lockie was a happy clever little boy at the time of his death he was three years old 
standing only 66 centimetres tall, weighing 17.5 kilos, with medium length, shaggy blonde hair. Paul. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Paula Michelle had been separated for five months, and it was in the final weeks before Lockie's death that Paul began to worry about the safety of his son. And it appears that a lot of these concerns seemed to stem from the relationship between Paul and Cameron and Johnny, Michelle's other sons, and the fact that this relationship grew strained upon the arrival of Lockie. This would eventually boil over one night, when an incident would ultimately result in Paul being arrested, where according to Paul, a heated verbal argument between himself the boys and Michelle, after a day of growing tension, resulted in him pushing past Michelle in an attempt to leave the house. During this, Michelle was knocked over, and the police were called. Pissed off, obviously, and when you... Oh, we had enough confrontation or an argument and verbal words, and then I was waiting to go, and that, and I... Yeah, oh, I probably said a couple of things I shouldn't have said to the kids and that because you know they shouldn't have. My guy Cameron shouldn't have been there anyway. It was just like it was a massive setup. So I shot past her and pushed her or nudged her and that, and never hit her or that. And yeah, uh, yeah so I got out of there and yeah, that's how I got arrested. And uh, when I uh, got arrested on the oh that was on the Saturday night and got arrested on the Sunday. Yeah, and then so yeah, tell me about that because there was um the guy that that arrested you, that the cop. Yeah, well, two, two or three times beforehand, um, for certain circumstances, um, the boys had told Michelle I'd done this and done that, so she'd rung the police and the uh, causing um, yeah, problems and that. But every time the police come, I would say, oh, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm worried about my son, mate. And they said, oh, well, would you... Um, We've got somewhere you can stay. We just drive you there, and you know, we don't, rather than cause an incident or a disturbance. And so I've done that, and then a couple of times, and I told the police then that you know, as long as my son's safe, and you know, this is all right, believing all these, these kids all the time. And then there was another time he took uh, Johnny took off, and I come home and said I threatened to kill him or something, and yeah, it's just rubbish. Chased him over there, and then, of course the police got there and seen me chasing him. So then I had a um, I was meant to stay away through the head policeman, well, uh, through the woman's refuge and that. Yeah. But every time Michelle said, you know, let me go back there, we were, you know, whether it was, yeah, so, yeah. Like, when those boys weren't there, we were flying. And as soon as those boys went there and there was a, 
there was a separation in the family because there was me and Lockie, and then you know they, you know, for she, some yeah, she was, would side with them kind of thing. Oh well, not side with them, you know. She just didn't know how to handle the situation, you know. Again, I want to state the obvious here: that we're only hearing Paul's side of this story, so bear that in mind. But there are some things here that are plainly obvious, and that's that after the birth of Lockie, there had been a growing animosity between Cameron and Johnny, and Paul. And that this led to the police being called on multiple occasions after the boys had made accusations against Paul that he claims are false. He goes on to describe times Paul arrived to find Lockie had been left on his own in the home. Needless to say, obviously, in the lead-up to Lockie's death, Paul describes a family in turmoil. And during this time, As the tension grew between himself and the boys, there was one creeping feeling that Paul couldn't shake. And that was a growing worry about the safety of his son. And tragically, he didn't keep this to himself. During the numerous run-ins with police, he repeated this concern again and again. And on the night of his arrest and subsequent drive to the police station in Invercargill, he again made this clear. Yeah. Bet, yeah. yeah. Tell me about that um, when you got arrested and um, so you were taken to Invercargill? Yeah, so what they've done is um, uh, you get taken to Invercargill, so they have a meeting at Dacre, um, they swap over at Dacre, so I got um, um, Sergeant Tamariki, who's quite nice and that, you know, and, um, yeah, I said, you know... I don't know what I've done, but, you know, this bloody... I'm worried about my son, and, you know, you've got to keep him safe and that. And he said, oh, yeah, I, you know, don't worry about your son. you just got to behave yourself. Nothing will happen to him. We'll make sure of that, so, yeah. But that was on that drive down? Yep. So at that point, and so that's on the side. Oh, I did tell the um, guy that I don't, I'm not too sure who he was. He was an Invercargill policeman, but I did tell him from the day to Invercargill the same sort of story, so... Oh, yeah. And I, um, yeah, so I got quite anxiety, I get quite a wee bit of anxiety and that, so they were quite good down there and that, they let me out and walk up and down the middle and that, because I was panicking and that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I definitely, and he wasn't the first policeman I told that I was worried about my son. After Paul's arrest, his access to Lockie was restricted, and in order to see his son, he would need to regularly contact his lawyer. Yet despite all of this, and the fact that surely if these charges indicated Michelle felt threatened by Paul, he tells me about the last night he spent with Lockie, and the fact that Michelle herself asked Paul if he'd like to stay. It really seems like everything sort of escalated that weekend. Oh yeah, it just got worse, and then of course I couldn't see Lockie for quite a while, and um, yeah, just... um uh, yeah, it just got worse and that, you know, and I keep going to lawyers to try and get some access to him and she keep not providing me with that access and that, so... Yeah. And then all of a sudden, one... Well, we started talking again and then she said, oh, would you like to um, come round and stay? And I said, oh, oh, yeah, maybe. So I'll come round and stay and she said, oh, you're unlocking and just sleep in the bed and that's the last I've seen of him, so... Yeah. Which seemed bloody odd to me now, how all of a sudden I'm back there again, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, tell me about that last 
that last night you spent with him? Oh, he was all right, but he was on edge, but on edge and that, you know. It's, um, I've got a, I don't know, I might actually have it up here. A couple of recordings of him that he sort of, yeah, took, sort of bled, you know, about yeah. So I um, we done our thing and had tea and that, and uh, me and Lockie went to bed and. I had a bit of a sore back, so I grabbed my back, and then um, I said, oh, you all right, Dad? And, uh, all right, Lockie? And he said, oh, oh my Dad, he said, oh, we, um, can we go and stay in a motel? I said, oh, oh, how do you mean? He said, oh, like we do at the weekends and that. And I said, oh, well, not really. And that, I said, I've got to go to work tomorrow and that. And he said, oh, I'll come with you and that. And I said, oh, oh we'll see when you wake up. Uh, he was asleep. Um, sleep and then he woke up and that and I said oh, I promise I'll come back and get um, see you before I go and get my hair cut that night. Just to quickly recap, on the night before Lockie's death, Paul stayed at Michelle's home. On that night, Lockie had asked Paul if he could come to work with him the following day and if they could possibly stay at a motel, both of which Paul told Lockie weren't possible. But Paul made a promise to Lockie that he would come and see him prior to getting his hair cut the following day. I now ask Paul to jump ahead to that following day and recall what he remembers transpiring in the lead-up to Lockie's death. Dave um, Aiken was with you at the time, was he? I got my hair cut. Yeah, so tell me go from there. So I went down and got my hair cut. I actually, it was, well, it was 30 degrees that night and, and I, uh, of course, I ran around in the career run, so I was staying at my dad's um, in Easdale Road. So I quickly ran and had a shower and then I went and got my hair cut and then I had uh, tea and we got into bed or probably quarter to eight, eight o'clock-ish and that. And then I got a ring from Michelle just about nine or maybe before nine or just after nine I'm not too around that area anyway and um, she said oh um, oh I'm just ringing to let you know I um, oh we're looking for Lockett we can't um, she say um, I seem bloody weird um, oh, oh Lockie's gone missing um, Lockie's gone missing and we're not too sure where he is and I said oh what do you mean you don't know where he is and, she's, and that's the big thing that still bugs me to this day. Like, according to her police statement, she was chasing him, but yeah, when she rang me up, she had no idea where he was. You know, I said to the police, you know, hang on a minute, when she rang me up, she said, oh, I think he's, think he's gone. And I said, what do you mean she's gone? And, and oh, we said, oh, looking for it. And then she sort of hung up, and then this policeman rang back and said, oh, actually, uh, we're out looking for him. And, um, yeah, you know, and that was all right. Um, but, you know, when she first rang me, she was, she didn't say, you know, if what had, had panned out that night, she would have said, oh, Lockie was here and went down to her friend's house, but she never said. She had no clue where he was, so I don't believe her story that night one bit. Yeah. It just doesn't add up, you know. She lied that night, and if the police can't see that, well, you know, there's something drastically wrong. So I got out of bed. And my dad said, what's going on? And I said, oh, oh, Lockie's ran away and that. And then my dad said, he be at the park. I said, oh, no, he's one. I thought, I, um, I'm going to, going to find him. I think he's dead. It was my first gut instinct, mate. And I rung 
the Aikens and that, and that's what I said to them as well. So I sped up here and that, and I just, uh, mate, I just, the feeling in your gut, and it's just, I knew something more bad had happened, no, you could t- tell the way she talked and that, she had no idea. And, uh, you know, I just, so I met Dave Aiken at her, uh, outside Michelle's. So I went inside and that, and I got in there and I thought, oh, oh, that's good. Well, they must have found him. You know, she was sitting around having a cup of tea and the boys were cooking bacon and eggs, but which doesn't add up because they said they had pizza earlier on the night, but they never had pizza, but that's another story. They were cooking bacon and eggs and all that, and they had all their friends there. Um, a girl a girl that she worked with, Sarah Vass, was there. Debbie Vigers, Jade Vigers, uh, guy... Um, Oh, I'm not too sure, one of Cameron's friends and the girlfriends and Johnny. You know, it's about it was pretty convenient. There's about eleven people there and I said, Oh, where's Lockie and that? She goes, Oh, oh, what do you mean? I said, Well, where is he? And that and they go, Oh, oh, well, we don't know. I said, What are you all doing in here? And that you're not even out looking for him. And she goes, No. And they're watching Shortland Street and I thought, Oh, this is um this is weird, and then a friend said, oh, I'll oh, make you a cup of coffee, mate, sit down and remember the good times. Oh. And then I started getting a bit irate, and um, the kids come from up in the room where they were playing their PlayStation and pushed me up the door. So I went with Dave, and we went circling round, and the police were out looking for him, and neighbours and that, but... Um, um, and then I got a... We circled round, and then we got an um, ambulance come to Michelle, so I went back and said, oh, that's funny. So I met the ambulance driver and that, you know, before he got in there, he said, oh, we've just come to this house, 42, isn't it? And I said, oh, cardiac arrest? I said, oh, I'm not here. And that, and I said, oh, oh, how do you mean? And I said, oh, no, they're out looking for my son. There's no cardiac arrest here. So then someone else come down and ushered him down to the um, the um, gates where the ponds are, or to the road to the pond, so he went driving up there, so. Yeah, and, and so this whole time, Michelle and the boys and everyone were they just still in the house? Yeah, they never left once. They never left the house, not once. And yet, none of the none, none of the neighbours, uh, like everyone, had their windows open, sliding doors open. It was still twenty nine degrees at the stage, mate. Yeah, it was bloody hot. Not one person ever heard a scream or a yell or that. And here's a, here's a mum of a three year old wee boy. Never heard her once. From um, the time that me and Dave Bacon went there until they found Lockie, though, n- though none of them come outside their house. When Paul received the phone call from Michelle stating that Lockie was missing, Paul had immediately phoned his good friend, Dave Aitken, who arrived at Michelle's house at the same time as Paul. During this short period of time, according to Paul, no one in the house was making any effort to look for Lockie. However, prior to Paul arriving, Michelle had apparently, in fact, been out in the streets looking for Lockie and was the one who phoned emergency services at 9.36. She made this call from the location of the first oxidation pond, which is down Salford Street and up a gravel road approximately 700 metres from her home. At this time, according to the police report, Michelle was told by emergency services to return to her home and to remain there. 
the police timeline, or lack thereof, and exactly what took place and when is something we're going to look at in greater depth in upcoming episodes. But for now, I ask Paul to tell me about the terrible moment he discovered that Lockie had been found. Okay. Um, all right. So let's um, let's fast forward now. I guess so. The ambulance shows up. Yeah. Goes down. Do you follow it down to the ponds at that point? No, I stayed where I was, and um, yeah, I just stayed where they uh, was. And well, they didn't know it was him. They didn't tell me that they found him. The ambulance went down. They opened the gate, and then they shut the gate. All these people were there, and um, so I just waited and. Yeah, and then someone, oh, a big guy come to me and said, oh, oh, they found, they found him, and, and I think he's all right. And so I looked at Dale and said, oh, thank goodness, and uh, he was all right, quite a big big guy, a bald-headed guy. And um, I said, oh, shit, that's all right. And then next minute I come down and uh, they come back and they, they said he was um, deceased. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, someone else did. The police didn't tell me. They walked past me. They didn't even acknowledge me. Didn't have the balls to do it. No, they went straight to Michelle's. As Paul stands on the dark gravel road, he's told by one official that it's okay. Lockie's been found and he's alive. Imagine that relief washing over you, feeling that warm rush of blood finally start to circulate back through your body. As he stands there with his friend Dave Aitken, a local female police officer walks directly past Paul and up towards Michelle's house without saying a word. Suddenly, something doesn't seem quite right. And moments later, Paul's world would come crashing down. As someone else, not the police, tells Paul the tragic outcome of Lockie's bizarre disappearance this night that he has been found and that he's dead a horrific end but one that provides closure only that it doesn't within minutes questions would be asked that couldn't be explained and a father a town and even the local council would repeatedly ask the same question. What happened to Lockie Jones? This is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that, opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. You'll find further photos and video related to this podcast on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. I highly recommend you join the discussion with hundreds of other guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. Unlike other New Zealand podcasts, we have never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes.
of every episode. On the next episode of Guilt, what happened to Lockie Jones? They had him in a police car, and um, in the back of a police car, and uh, the guy that I... Um, they took me down to the um, Chicago Police Station that night. Sergeant Tamariki, he was there and standing there, so me and him had a bus stop. I said, I told you, cunt, that this was going to happen to my son. Boy, how did you let it happen and that? And he just turned his back on me. Yeah, you, know, so, you know, something sinister's happened, you know. I don't know how they connect like that. And, and, you know, at this stage, they've given me no answers, you know. I don't know how my son got out there. Yeah. You know, and that, and ninety percent of gore, or probably ninety nine percent of gore, are in the same boat as me. Yeah. You know, they don't know what to do. You know, it's easy for them. You know, they haven't lost their son. They get on with their lives. I can't. It's a big. I've got nothing left apart from, you know, Caroline and that now, and my job and that. You know, all that taken away from me. <laughs>